And we are going to continue our study through Exodus. We're returning to Exodus. And we're going to look at chapters 25 through chapter 27. Three chapters, no big deal. We can do three chapters, right? Easy. Piece of cake. It's 15 minutes a chapter. Oh, wait, no, 15 minutes a point, and there's seven points. How much is that? I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. Exodus chapter 25 is where we are. If you guys want to turn there. Anybody need a Bible? We'll bring one to you. No? Anyone? Okay, great. Exodus 25. So you want to turn there in your Bibles or turn on your device and turn there. Exodus 25. I forgot to see what page it's on in our Bibles. I apologize. But there's a table of contents in the front. We'll tell you Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. And so if you find Exodus, you can find chapter 25, I'm sure. Exodus chapter 25. I'm going to read the first nine verses and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Every man whose heart moves him, you shall from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns yarns and fine twined uh, twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, and for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furnitures, so you shall make it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see how this tabernacle, this tent, was needed for your people, Israel, and how it points forward to our need for Jesus. That, Lord, we would receive this and we respond to you and we rejoice in your provision of Jesus. And, Father, I pray that, Lord, if anyone's here today who doesn't yet know you, Lord, may they submit their lives to you today because they see how good you are. Father, show us your goodness through your word. Do this for our good and for your glory, glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 24, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's on that mountain where there was was lightning and thunder and earthquakes and it was so terrifying that the people didn't even want to draw near to the mountain. But in this mountain, God did eventually call his people up. He called Moses and Joshua, if you remember. He called the 70 representatives of God's people of Israel up there. And they were in a place where they actually ate and drank before the Lord, and they didn't die. They saw a vision of God, and they didn't die. And we saw from last week, this was God confirming his covenant to his people that he indeed wants to be near his people. 
And after they have this, this time of being as close as they can get to God, God calls Moses to even a closer bit. He's right in the cloud of his glory. And when Moses is in that place, God says, now Moses, I got some plans for you. I want you to make me a tent. I, I, I want to take my presence from this terrifying mountain where my, the, my absolute goodness is, is seen in a way that, that really just makes this place shake. I want you to build a place where I can then dwell right in the midst of my people. In fact, I want you to notice four things about these verses we just read. First, we want to notice that God wants Israel to willingly offer the materials that they acquired from the Egyptians. He's asking them to do this willingly. Now, this, we're going to come back to this when we get to chapter 35, but keep that in mind. But also, he wants them to make uh, a sanctuary. A sanctuary would be a, 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 an area that's set apart for God. This is a place that would be just for him, that would show that he is distinct from his people. Also, that God wants this, that he might dwell in their midst. The God who said, look, don't get too close to the mountain is now saying, I want to be right in the middle of the camp, right exactly where you're going to be. And also, I want you to notice that God wants it to be made to his exact specifications. And that's what we're going to focus on really today. Because here's the thing, we're not going to look at every single verse in these three chapters. Uh, I really encourage you to go back and read the details. But we don't want to get lost in the details. What we want to see is, is the way that, that God speaks to Moses how he orders these specific commands, these specific instructions for these seven parts of this whole thing that we're calling the tabernacle. As he gives us these things, the order themselves says something about how God wants his people to know him. And it was, we'll see, it points forward to Jesus. So let's look at the first thing. In, in verses 10 to 22 of chapter 25, we see the ark. And the ark shows us it's a place where we honor God's rule. I'm just going to read verses 10, excuse me, to verse 18. Follow with me. Yet they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it, two rings uh, on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken out from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now God gives us this instruction for this thing called an ark. And actually the Hebrew word is just box. But the English translation uses ark because of the tradition of the ark of the covenant. But it is a box. What's interesting about this is we see the dimensions, we think, what's this got to do with us? But understand this, the first readers would have heard these dimensions, and they would have recognized these are the dimensions of the footstool of royalty. So when a king built his throne, he would build his throne to certain specifications. It needed to be at least as big as the surrounding nations, and then they would build a footstool in the same way. And the elaborate footstool of this kind of size was a way to say he rules over everyone who's under his feet. Anyone who would come to see a king would be below his feet. 
And so in a very real sense, what God's doing here is by commanding this, he's saying, listen, I want you to make sure that you are, are seeing this as a footstool that is worthy of my authority, that speaks of this. Now, you see also that we mentioned, he, he, he writes about saying, you shall make, in verse 17 he says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half will be at length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them, uh, and on the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, that, that, that phrase mercy seat, it's, it's a, it really is a word that just should be translated cover or lid. But it's called a mercy seat because of what will eventually happen on this place. It'll be a place on this box where it is going to be in the tabernacle where God will once a year have the high priest go and put uh, puts, uh, blood on there to make atonement for his people, to wash away the sins of his people. So that's why it's called the mercy seat, the place where God shows mercy. Now again, this is important for us to recognize, especially when we see this idea of the cherubim. You've never heard of a ter- the term cherub. You, you might have heard someone say, you might have seen pictures of these little fat babies that with a- angel's wings. You ever seen these little cherry babies? But actually, so we think a cherubim is the plural of that. But don't picture here two little fat babies on top of this box, okay? These aren't two fat gold babies. Cherubim, actually, in the, in the, in the Near East, were, were these these. Uh, these beings, these powerful spiritual beings that were like warrior angels. Often they were seen as a, a lion with a man's head or a bull with a lion's head with huge wings. They were seen as these spiritual beings that were, in, in all kinds of different traditions, they were seen as these warrior kind of angelic spiritual beings. And so what you have pictured here is a place where, where God said, okay, this is my, so to speak, my footstool. This is the place where my feet hit the ground. And, and what's happening in my footstool is there are these two angelic beings, the most powerful spiritual beings known in your culture, and they are bowing down at my feet. And they're doing so on a place that will be referred to as the mercy seat. And so what God's doing here is God's showing the Israelites, you need to remember, he's saying to them, you need to recognize my absolute and merciful rule. You need to recognize that. If I'm going to be the God that dwells in your midst, you're going to have to recognize that's who I am. I'm the one who absolutely rules sovereignly and with mercy. Now, how does this point to Jesus? Well, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, John, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation, he sees Jesus as glorified. He sees Jesus after he's resurrected, after he's ascended to heaven, he has a vision of Jesus, and he sees Jesus in his glory as ruling with absolute authority and mercy. Listen to this. John, describing the glorified Jesus, says, in his right hand he held seven stars. With his, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was, was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys, that's absolute authority, of death and Hades. So when John sees this glorified vision of Jesus, he sees him as the one who rules with absolute authority, but also mercy. 
John faints before him, scared to death at his glory. And the glorified Jesus says, don't be afraid. I was dead and now I'm alive. See, here's the thing that we need to recognize. If we're going to draw near to this God, God, God who's, who's provided a way that we could, he could dwell with us, we need to recognize in Christ and honor his absolutely good rule. This is what Jesus says to his followers, right? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's what he says. So moving from the ark, we move then to the table, the table of showbread. Look at verse 23. He says, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit shall be its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Now drop down to verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now we know from other parts of the, of the Old Testament that the bread of presence was actually 12 loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And what God's doing here is he's wanting them to remember, God's wanting his people to remember his provision for them in the wilderness. We've already seen, right, how is God providing for his people in the wilderness through this supernatural stuff called manna, which means, what is it? It's this bread from heaven, right? God's providing for them. So these 12 loaves represent how God continued to provide for them as they went from Egypt to the promised land. But also, listen, it's called the bread of presence. It's the idea that this, 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 this provision of food is a way that God communes with his people. As it is, in, as we've said before, in, in most cultures in the world, when you have a meal with somebody, you're saying, I want a relationship with this person. This is the way that God's saying, listen, I want this. So in a very real way, this is God saying, look, I'm willing for you to eat my presence. This is what we saw last, last time in chapter 24, isn't it? That they went up there, as we just mentioned earlier, and they ate and drank in God's presence, and they didn't die? And they're like, wow, God says we can do this. They were celebrating something amazing, this privilege. Now, how does this point to Jesus? Well, it points to Jesus because he is the bread of life. Listen to this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the table is the place where we enjoy God's company. I don't know what you think you're hungry and thirsty for, but what's behind that hunger and thirst is the fact that you've been made to know God. And unless you Unless he is your greatest hunger, unless you're looking to him to fulfill your greatest hunger, you'll never be satisfied. When Jesus was saying these words in John chapter 6, he had just fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, and, and he had gone away, and then, and then they met him in another place, and they're looking for another free meal. They're saying, send us bread from heaven like Moses did. And he says, man, you don't get it. I am the bread from heaven. So I don't know what you're hungry and thirsty for, but... God has provided a way that he can dwell with us, that we can be satisfied in him. Verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 31 of chapter 25, the lampstand. He says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, and its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And you shall, uh, you shall be six, I'm sorry, there shall be six branches going 
out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of another side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower, and on one branch, and three cups made with almond, branch, uh, almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the other branch. So six, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. Now, I, I want to say before I, I, I go on, I, there, you've seen the kind of real basic diagram of where these things would be in this tabernacle, okay? But I, I, was, I, I actually downloaded a whole bunch of pictures of what people think it looks like, and I was going to put these all on to show you, and I decided not to. The reason I said not to is I think what I've found is a lot of people make so much of the detail of these things, that the gold means this and the acacia wood means this. And I, In fact, I used to do this. The last time I taught Exodus 20 years ago, I did the same thing. And I've kind of realized that actually it's maybe making more of this than we need to. And so I think it's more important that we see what are the basic things that God's wanting his people to understand and what are the basic things that we need to understand. So when it comes to the, the lampstand here, we need to recognize, okay, that the construction of this lampstand was meant to resemble a tree, an almond tree specifically. It was meant to resemble the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. You can read about this in Genesis 2.9. And Israel needed to remember, listen, they needed to remember when they knew that this was being built, they needed to remember that they, they can only experience the life of God if they're in the light of God. That this, this lampstand, this place that would be lit in perpetually, which we'll talk about at the end, this lampstand was to remind them, listen, you only have my life if you walk in my light. So how does this point us to Jesus? Well, listen, this is what John says in his gospel, John chapter 1. He says, in Jesus, that's the word become flesh, if you read John chapter 1, in Jesus was life, the life was, notice, the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see the connection between light and life? Jesus brings both. And unless we walk with him, we don't experience that light. This is why John would say in his epistle, and I think we read this two weeks ago, but it's good to repeat it. John says this in his epistle in 1 John. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the lampstand was to remind Israel, listen, you can't have my life unless you walk in my light. And it points to Jesus because he is our light and our life. And as we walk with him, we experience what God has for us. Chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim, skilled work, uh, skillfully worked into them. Now, again, we want to come back and talk more about cherubim in a bit, but I want you to notice that, that what he's going to do here, in fact, if you go back and read the rest of this later on, you'll see that he's describing this, this, these, these curtains, these huge curtains that need to be made in a very specific way with certain materials. They need to have certain things, uh, certain kind of colors involved that, that would speak of royalty and of, uh, of God's divine nature. But also they have these cherubim embroidered in them for a reason that we're going to come back to in a bit. But he describes all these things, and if you were to read all the section, you kind of hopefully begin to pick up on the fact that he's describing to make these things out of many different pieces. Pieces that all come together to form this tabernacle. And one of the things that he's trying to do is he's saying, listen, uh, you need to, to, 
you need to build something that's movable. God wanted them to build a mobile structure. Why? Because they're going from Egypt to the promised land. They're in process. They're in, in, in transport. They're moving. But also, listen, one of the things that, that people believed in Near East cultures was they believed that the gods they worship were connected to their locality. So, so back in the day, there were probably people here who worshipped Celtic gods that were the gods of Norfolk. They probably didn't call them the gods of Norfolk, but you know what I'm saying. They, they worshipped the gods that were of this area. And they felt like they had certain gods in this area, and those gods would bless them to be able to live in this area. So if you moved away from that area, you might anger those gods, and you're going to have to sort of get away from that anger and try to appease the new god in the new area. You guys following me? That's the way people thought. And so what they would try to do is they would try to box God in by building some sort of a, an idol that represented this God or some way that they could kind of say, okay, God, we're, we're going to keep you happy so that you, you keep blessing us. And what God's saying is this. He's saying, listen, I, I want you to, to build a place. I want you to make a place that can easily be uprooted and moved somewhere else because I'm not the God of a locality. I'm the God of heaven and earth. I'm the God of the universe. I'm the God that's chosen you and initiated this relationship. And I'm going to go wherever you go. In fact, it's interesting. They also needed to be, needed to be mobile because they needed to be move, ready to move whenever God wanted to move. We, we saw this a little bit earlier in the book of Exodus where God was kind of leading them through a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You guys remember that? And this is kind of how he leads them through the wilderness. You see this throughout the Old Testament, especially the first five books. And, and, and the thing was, is that when, when the pillar sits still, they set up their camp, they, they camped there. When the pillar began to move, they got up and they moved. It's the same thing going to happen with this tabernacle. And when God's ready to move, you move. When God says to stay, you stay. This is important. It's important because God wants Israel to be assured of his presence, and he wants Israel to be prepared to move when he moves. That's what he wants them to do. See, the inner court, this inner part, in fact, I think, I think on the, if it's on the screen, the inner court should be in green. Is that right? I'm colorblind, so I hope it's in green. <laughs> but it should be in green. And this inner court, this place where God would, would dwell, okay, points to Jesus. It points to Jesus because, listen, Jesus has promised his disciples, he promised us that he would never leave us alone. Did you know that? Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he died. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's another of the same kind. He says, to be with you, notice, forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. What's Jesus promising? He's promising that when he ascends to heaven, he will send his Holy Spirit. And it is indeed the Spirit of Christ. That's who dwells in us. In fact, this is, what the, the, this is how the New Testament writers saw this. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, this is in 1 Corinthians 3, this is God saying us plurally, not just us singly. 1 Corinthians 6 says us individually are God's temple, but that's another story. But this is us 
together. That we are God's dwelling place. And I want you to think about this. This is about the fact that intercourse speaks of the place of God's manifest presence, where God makes himself known in the midst of his gathered people. Jesus promised he's going to do this. What did Jesus say? The last thing he says before he ascends, according to Matthew's gospel, he says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why did they need to know he was with them? Well, they loved him. They wanted that fellowship with him. They would get that through the Spirit. But also, listen, because he had a mission for them to be on. Because he said to them, go. And they needed to get up and go, knowing that he was with them wherever they went. This is important. Because when we talk about wanting God to manifest his presence, because the truth is the Bible teaches really clearly that God is, there's nowhere we can go that God's not there. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But we want God to manifest his presence, to make himself known. It's when we're gathered together under the authority of Jesus, saying, Jesus, we want to make you known. We want to be disciples who make disciples. And God says, that's when I'm going to make myself known to you. This is why we, we read in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul talks about when God's spirit is working among God's people, that God's people are in this place and unbelievers would come in and say, surely God is in this place. Because they're about God's business. They're about knowing God and honoring God's presence. That's the inner court. Now we get to verse 31 of chapter 26. And Jesus, be, or I'm sorry, and Moses begins to, to describe or receive from, from God the, the description of the veil that is meant to separate this inner court into two parts. Look at verse 31. You shall make the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns of finely twinned linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. There's cherubim again. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the, from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Notice, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So if you look at the diagram, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant is, that one place. And between that was, or on the other side of that was the holy place, and that's where we see the other bits that we've already talked about. The lampstand and the, um, uh, what else is in there? You read and look at the things you'll see. And there's other bits written. This is, this is where the priest will do the work. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But the point is, there's something about this veil that speaks to, some, that speaks to Israel. Again, this is, this is the place in the, mo, in the holy place, which is the, the holy of holies, that smaller place, and then the, the, the rest of it combined. This is a place that only the priests were allowed to enter in, and we'll see this next week. But they were still, the, the Israelites still saw this being made. They still heard these instructions being given. This still would speak to them about something. And these veils with cherubim were, were meant to speak to them about something. This was necessary for Israel if they're going to draw near God. You see, Israel needed to remember from where they had fallen. They needed to remember where they had fallen. If, if we, we mentioned before, it's, it was these mighty cherubim, these, 
these sort of angels, okay? These, these kind of warrior angels. There was one of these cherubim that was placed by God to guard the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And, and, and basically, they were guarded there to say, look, you're banished. You can't come back in here. And these were, were woven into the fabric of the entire inner court. So everywhere in this inner court were this cherubim. It was a reminder, this is the place where God dwells, and it's a place that you were kept from because you were banished from the Garden of Eden. In other words, the veils were a place that remind them that their sinfulness is exposed. They cannot hide their sinfulness. They, they can't act like it's not there. It's there. And the, and the tabernacle was to remind them it's there. It's still there. And it reminds me of something. This is how I think it points to Jesus. It reminds me that, that there's still a veil between us and God until we submit our lives to Christ. It's still there. Our sinfulness still creates a barrier between us and God until we submit our lives to Christ. Do you remember the story in Matthew 19 of this young man, this rich young ruler he's known as, who comes to Jesus and says, you know, what, what good teacher, what good thing should I do to inherit the kingdom of life and, or, or the, uh, inherit eternal life? And, and, and Jesus says to him, well, um, you, know, uh, you know the commands, and he lists the commands of things he's supposed to do, and he goes, well, I've been doing all those things. The young man says to Jesus, all these, command, all these commandments I have kept, what do I still lack? He recognizes, I'm, I'm doing, I think, what God wants me to do, but something's missing from my life still. So Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, possess and give it to the poor, that, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. It's like he's saying to this young man, listen, you're, you're lacking something, and you know you lack something, and you think you'll make up that lack on your own, but you won't. The only way that lack is made up is through me. It's about you following me. See, these veils remind us, listen, they remind us that there is a, a, a wall of separation between us and God. And it's only through Jesus that that wall is dealt with. It's only through Jesus that that veil is torn. This is what we read about Jesus on the cross in Mark chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last while he's on the cross. And the curtain of the temple, that's referring to this veil between the, that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, notice, from top to bottom. Now, if it was torn from bottom to top, you might think some overzealous priests were in there kind of turning that thing open. But from top to bottom, what is that? And this curtain, by the way, if you were to look at what's described here in, in the tabernacle, and if you were to, to look into what would eventually be the temple and, and what, the, what we know from archaeology, how, how big that, that, that veil was. This is a nine-inch thick veil. It's layer upon layer upon layer sewn together. And it was as if God says, now that Christ has died, I'm tearing this veil in two. It's through him and him alone that you can enter in to my presence. Now, chapter 27. God says to Moses, you shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits and you shall make horns for it 
on the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, we're getting to what's called the bronze altar, or just we might just call it the altar. And this is outside that inner court. It's not in the Holy of Holies. It's not in the holy place. It's outside of that. It's right in front of it. And this would be the place where they would offer the sacrifices. This would be the place where they would, they would see the shedding of blood. Now, God says this. God commands that there be this tabernacle with this because it was necessary for Israel to remember the necessity of blood for atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. They needed to remember this. They needed to remember that they could only enjoy fellowship with God because he first initiated the covenant and he sealed it with the blood of a sacrifice. That's the only way they could enjoy fellowship with God. They needed to know that. They needed to remember that. Now, it's interesting if you think about this. The way this is described, these curtains that would be on the outer court, which we'll talk about in a second, these are really high. And they couldn't have seen in. So, so the person who was bringing their sacrifice would bring their sacrifice to the, the priest. The priest would bring it inside uh, where the altar was, and they would slay it. But if you were all, uh, sitting anywhere that had elevation, you'd be able to look down and see what was going on. And you couldn't see inside the holy, the holy place, but you could see inside the, the, the main part of the tabernacle, and you would see sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice being made for God. Animal after animal being slain, their water caught, their, uh, their blood caught in a basin, the animal stuck onto this big bronze altar, and it being consumed as a sacrifice to God. They'd see it over and over and over and over again. And, and, it, and it's, it's a sense that, that God's saying, look, there's no approaching the holy place of God's dwelling without the provision of a sacrifice for sins. But it was also a way to show them, listen, no matter how many bulls and how many goats you sacrifice, it's never going to be enough. Because as we said earlier, the only people that were allowed to go into the holy place were the priests, and into the holy of holies, the high priest, and that only once a year. And so God's doing this picture. He's saying, listen, there has to be an altar. In fact, this would be the, the, the first thing that was there. You couldn't get anywhere near without first presenting a sacrifice. Even the priest would have to do that. See, what, what the, the, the blood of these multiple sacrifices couldn't do, Jesus can. This is what this, how this points to Jesus. Listen, the author of Hebrews makes this really clear. In Hebrews chapter 9, he says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, if this Old Testament stuff was a good enough temporary cover, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, we don't come to God and say, God, okay, I've I got to bring some kind of a sacrifice because I know I've sinned again this week, so I've got to bring some kind of a sacrifice so that if I bring a sacrifice, that you'll accept me again. No, we don't come to God that way. We come to God recognizing, listen, that Jesus gave the once-for-all sacrifice so that even when our conscience is defiled, we know we've done wrong or we've neglected to do right, even when our conscience is defiled, the blood of Christ cleanses us, makes us clean. 
In other words, the altar tells us this is the place where our sins are atoned for. It's a done deal. Now, the last description is about the, the outer court. That would be the, the sort of the outside of the rectangle in the diagram. And God says to Moses, listen, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court, you shall have hangings of fine uh, uh, twined linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And he goes on to describe also the, the, the north side and the west side. But go down to verse 13. The breadth of the, uh, of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, the other with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side of the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarn of fine twin linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. Now, if you're looking at your diagram, the diagram that's on the screen, the top of the of of the uh, the top of the rectangle of the outer court is north. That God said this is how it needs to be set up. It needs to be set up with that long bit north. The reason that's important is because the front bit where you enter would be the east, and this is incredibly significant. It would have been really clear to the first people who heard these instructions that that God says, listen, I want the the opening to the place where I dwell to be facing east. This is why. Listen. We read after Adam and Eve fell, after they rebelled against God, and God says, I need, God basically drives them out. Here's what we read. Listen. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, The Lord drove out the man, at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that had turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So for Israel, every time they mentioned east or moving east, every reminder of looking back to a garden they got kicked out of. And now God says, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to build a, I want to have you build a dwelling place that the entrance is in the east so that when you look to the east from now on, you go, wow, that's where we can potentially enter in to restored fellowship with God. It becomes a place of hope. How does this point to Jesus? Do you guys remember Peter? When on the night before Jesus is, is crucified, Peter says, Lord, if everyone denies you, I'll never deny you. Do you guys remember that? And what did the Lord say to Peter? Peter, I'm telling you, man, three times tonight, you're going to deny me. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And of course it happens, isn't it? Just as the Lord predicted, Peter denies Jesus three times after he's arrested. But, of course, then Jesus is not just arrested, but he's beaten and he's crucified. And after he's crucified, he's resurrected. And after he's resurrected, he appears to the disciples, the apostles, several times. And Peter even interacts with Jesus. But he seems to be so burdened, so ashamed by his denial, so ashamed by his failure, that he says, I'm going to go back fishing. I'm going to go back to my old way of life. And he goes back fishing. And as he's fishing in John chapter 21... He's fishing. He catches nothing. Just like the first time he interacts, really, or the Bible records him interacting with Jesus. He fishes, he catches nothing. And Jesus calls from the shore and says, hey, have you caught anything? No. Pitch your net over there. 
And they realized, that's Jesus. And Peter dives in the water, and he's, he's there, on, Jesus is on the beach making them breakfast. The resurrected Jesus, before he, goes, before he ascends to heaven. And, and Jesus begins to interact with Peter, and what does he do? Listen. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And this is really grieving to Peter because Peter knows that he, doesn't, he hasn't loved Jesus as he should. In fact, uh, you guys might know this, but in John 21, Jesus uses two different words for love. He uses one word that says, do you agape me or agape me? Do you have this, this God kind of love for me? And Peter kind of answers, well, you know, I phileo you or I have a friendship or I have a strong affection for you. And eventually, Jesus asked him this in John 21, verse 17. He said to, to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you have affection for me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, Peter, even though you denied me three times in my lowest part of my life, I'm bringing you back. I'm welcoming you back. I'm saying you can be restored. You can start fresh with me. This is what I'm saying to you. See, this is what the tabernacle does. The outer court, even though it was a place that once and said, okay, you can't go beyond this, there was still this opening towards the east to the place where they had failed before saying, listen, you are welcomed back. God is saying to his people, I'm preparing a way that you can be brought back. Guess what that way is? Guess who that way is? Jesus. He's our way back. So if we look at this tabernacle and we see that this is God's dwelling place, but he says, this is what I want. I want my people to be willing to make me a dwelling place. And I want it to be to the exact specifications that I say. I want it to be so clear that this is how I want it for these reasons, and I want my people to come to me this way. If he does this, and the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing the presence of God? Are you drawing near to the place where God dwells? Are you drawing near to God through the person of Jesus? Because it's through him and him alone that we experience all these things. Do you see Jesus as God's good ruler? Do you see him that way? Do, do you see Jesus as the light of the world, the one that you can know what life's about as you walk with him? Do you see him as the bread of life? Do you see Jesus as, 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 the, as God manifesting himself to us in mankind and his spirit being given to us because of what he's done for us? Do you see the cross of Christ as the place where our sins are dealt with? Do you recognize that there's a separation between you and God because of your sin, and your sin needs to be dealt with? Do you see Jesus as the tabernacle? Because this is what the scripture says. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh. Speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us. Do you see him that way? Because listen, as much as the Israelites had to stand on the outside and only the priest could go in and only the high priest once a year, as we're going to see next week, Jesus is our high priest. And guess what that means? Because he's our high priest, we can go all the way into the Holy of Holies and experience the presence of God. Are you experiencing him? Do you know him? 
Because this is what God wants for you. God wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you want to know us. In spite of our failings, in spite of our, our slowness to believe, in spite of our, our, our own sinfulness, in, in spite of all, all that we're not, you still want to know us. You still want to make yourself known to us. Lord, you indeed made us for this reason. And you redeem us to this privilege. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known to us afresh. That we would see in Jesus the fulfillment of all that you've done and promised for your people. That we would look to him as the place where, we, where you dwell. That we would want to tabernacle with you, dwell with you, through him. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would, it would just sink in. It would, they would just know that they need to know you. And they can only know you through Jesus. And Father, I pray for thus, those of us who, who do know you, who have known you. Lord, are we, are we walking with you? Lord, are we enjoying you as the light of the world? Or being open about who we are? Lord, are, are, are we living in such a way that we will get up and move when you say to move? That we'll stay when you say to stay? Are we enjoying your presence? Are we communing with you, eating with you? Oh, Lord, help us to do this. Not to just to feel bad when we don't, but to, to move towards you, Lord. The way still faces east, we can still come. We're still welcome. Help us to push past the altar, to go through into the holy place and go right to the holy of holies. Please, Lord, draw us to yourself, Lord, as we draw near to you, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Again, if you can help with some of the leafleting or the things that are on the uh, back of the announcements, that would be really, really helpful. And we hope to see you all very soon. God bless.